Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. A fundamental principle of conflict is that action beats reaction. That is, if you act in such a way that an opponent must respond to you, then you are in control. Today's podcast is exploring the many facets of this concept, the idea that you take initiative and keep it until the conflict is over. Understanding this is crucial to having sound strategies and tactics which have a far greater chance of success. This principle is so prominent that you see it not only in martial arts and warfare strategy, but in game strategy such as chess, as well as the verbal arts of debate and sales strategy. In Aikido terms, this is often referred to as Shoto Asezu, or control the first move. Controlling the first move is very important, but as an exchange goes on, you must keep control and not allow the initiative to be taken from you. If you don't maintain the advantage constantly by shifting as your opponent keeps trying to take control for himself, then you will likely lose it and the tables will turn. Only a fool would give up an advantage position once he has one. The word attack can set some Aikidoka on edge because it is largely believed that Aikido is a defensive art. This belief is that Aikidoka does not attack, but waits until the opponent commits to an attack and only then does the Aikidoka respond. Aikido is almost always practiced in this manner. Of course, practice makes permanent. However you practice is how you will perform under stress. Actually, you will probably perform worse under stress conditions than how you normally practice. If you practice to always let an attacker make the first move, then you must really get good at taking the initiative back from him. In the fighting world, this strategy is called being a counterpuncher. The counterpuncher is highly skilled at exploiting the openings left from a committed attack. All attacks leave the attacker vulnerable to some degree or other. A counterpuncher's skills must be extremely sharp for him to succeed. This approach demands nearly perfect analysis of range, timing, and movement. All responses must be extremely precise. The counterpuncher approach tends to falter by being overwhelmed by multiple successive attacks as well as unorthodox attacks. It is also vulnerable to mistakes, either with incorrect analysis of the opponent's movements, falling for feints or fakes, or not executing well. If any of these goes wrong, the counterpuncher will likely fail. Counterpunchers are most common in the sport fighting world. A main reason is that sport fighters almost always have early notification of who their next opponent will be and can study their attacks very carefully. This preparation is crucial for a counterpuncher. It is far more difficult to count on the reactionary strategy of a counterpuncher when you have no idea who your opponent is, when and where you may be attacked, or what kind of attacks you are going to encounter. I believe this is why the Shoto Osezu principle is so important to Aikido, which is designed for self-defense situations more than sport applications. Why then do Aikidoka practice to react defensively? Answering that question in depth could probably be a podcast all on its own, but I think the short answer is that practicing paired katas in response to attacks is simple and straightforward. I'm sorry to say that Aikido and the martial arts world in general has a lot of instructors and practitioners who don't mind taking shortcuts and letting their training get lazy. It's far easier to follow a simple formula, even though it might be wrong or slightly inaccurate, than challenging yourself and your students to handle greater threats. Anyway, I'm not going to go deep into that subject on this podcast, so I'll leave it there for now and let's get back on topic. If you look at the footwork and movement of sport fighters, even they use small movements to jockey for an advantage position, all the while trying to avoid letting their opponent get into an advantage position. These movements are usually small and done with very little risk, Sport fighters tend to have the skills to exploit a committed attack, so these attacks must be set up first to avoid having the opponent effectively counter your attack. 
When we look at real fights, they take on a whole different look than sport fights. The level of precision and discipline is nowhere near as high as even amateur sport fights. Anger and rage plays a role, as attacks out of anger are usually much bigger than precision attacks of a calm sport fighter. Even experienced fighters lose their discipline when they attack out of anger. In a real fight, once one party successfully takes the initiative, the fight usually ends in their favor. There's no bell or referee to halt the attack or give the person getting beat up a reprieve. If anger is a factor, chances are that mercy on the part of your attacker will likely not be at play either. The stakes are far higher in a real fight because of this. I've met a number of sport fighters who are extremely skilled and are happy to go 100% intensity in a ring at any time as they are confident in their abilities, but want nothing to do with a street fight. The reason that they shared with me is that anything can happen in a street fight. You have no idea whether other people are going to come into play, deadly weapons are going to come into play, you just don't want to have any part of that. The ante in a real attack is very high. You lose and that could be the end for you. Gaining initiative as early as possible is crucial. If you're ambushed, it means taking initiative back immediately, and that might require a remarkable effort. This is another thing I believe Aikido in general needs to improve its message on. The idea that an Aikidoka would never attack or use force because Aikido is about blending and maneuvering alone is overlooking a very important aspect of strategy. Let me give you an example from the military strategy realm to describe how they train soldiers to deal with an ambush. Mind you, the military arrives at this formula over hundreds of years of experience through trial and error and noticing what works and what doesn't. Their stakes are also extremely high. A unit which is ambushed is very likely to be annihilated. So here's the scenario. A company of soldiers is walking down a slightly winding road with trees and hills on both sides. Unbeknownst to them, an enemy company has set up an ambush position. The enemy has blocked the road around the bend so the victims cannot push forward to get out. They have set up soldiers on either side of the road in elevated positions behind cover so they can fire safely while their victims are caught in the open. The only way out might be to back out the way the victims came, but gun positions are in place to provide fire there. Often, ambushes like this will have a ditch or a gully which acts as an obvious cover for panicked victims to jump into. This position will be entirely surrounded and fire will usually be coming in from all sides. It's better than being caught in the open, but the victim company is still likely doomed. So what formula did the military figure out to solve this dilemma? They don't teach to go back the way that you came because that will have been planned for. A good ambush will wait until victims are well into the trap before they spring it, so backing out is probably the worst thing that you can do, short of freezing in place and getting gunned down in the open. Instead, the strategy is to concentrate an attack on one point of the encirclement and punch your way out of the ambush. Yes, casualties are likely to be high, but it is the only way to save your company and leave with your lives. 100% focus and effort is put to this counterattack to blast your way out of the ambush. This describes the ugliness of having either a superior attacker to you or being in a position of severe disadvantage. Blending and being flexible might not save your skin. You might just have to attack when you realize negotiation is impossible and the situation is dire. It should not be at that point when you wish that you would have trained more so that you can be effective at attacking. This scenario paints a rather brutal picture. Street ambushes can be this brutal and fast and can do just as well making sure the prey is at such a disadvantage that his fate is all but sealed. If we take a moment and think like thugs, why would we want to engage in violence if we were not assured to prevail? Thugs might not be geniuses, but they are not so foolish as to start fights without an advantage or two, or three. 
Now let's set this scenario aside and look at the idea of attacking or taking initiative and keeping it from a training perspective. I don't want to give the impression that I'm advocating turning training sessions into brutal street fights. You can train taking initiative safely and it should be done as a progression. Start slowly and build up speed with it as students get more comfortable performing them. This is exactly how I was shown wrestling and grappling over the last few years. There were two major light bulb moments I experienced as I learned the basics of wrestling and grappling. Granted, I'm still working on improving them, but they both changed and improved how I was doing profoundly. One was about initiative, and that is in wrestling, the advantage goes to the wrestler who moves to attack the next limb or moves to take an advantage position first. The other wrestler must respond to guard it, and when he does, he presents another target for his opponent. My mentor did this with me, and even at super slow speeds, I felt like I was merely playing catch-up. It always felt like he was a move or two ahead of me. Really, he only needed to be one move or half a move ahead. Things only changed around when I learned enough to start attacking and making him respond to my new advantage position. I mentioned two light bulb moments, and while this one isn't terribly relevant, you may be curious about what it was, so I'm going to share it with you. The second light bulb moment was realizing that when you get into grappling, you need to imagine like you're slipping into the water. Virtually all of us have been in a lake or pool up to our neck. When you move, you do not move quickly because of the resistance in the water. You should move like you're underwater when you grapple or are on the ground. Fighting the resistance of your opponent will not be effective and will only tire you out. Experienced wrestlers, grapplers, and jiu-jitsu practitioners are all calm and patient in the grappling realm. The image I have is of a gator sliding into the water. That is his realm and he can navigate it easily there without having to thrash and rush. Whatever action you take, it should invite your opponent to respond to you. When he does, you now act again to make him respond again. As long as you have this situation, him responding to you and you constantly getting to an advantage position, it's likely the exchange will end successfully for you. And there are many ways to do this. Some ways involve you merely moving around uke, some may involve you taking control of a limb, such as a joint lock, or some may involve you initiating a physical exchange with an attack that he must respond to. This last one is something that I think modern Aikidoka are very uncomfortable with and many would probably object to. However, we see Osensei do this frequently in demonstration films. Rarely does he give his ukes the chance to fully form their attack before he enters with an attack of his own, which he then turns into a technique. The question of who is nage and who is uke is deeper than we think at first glance. If you're anything like me, what I was first taught was that uke was the one who was initiating the attack and nage would respond. From a purely physical standpoint, as is commonly trained in a dojo, this is a simple way to describe it. I don't think it's entirely accurate with a real situation, though. Let me describe it with a scenario, and this is a basic description of a real event. A family was in the process of leaving an amusement park after a day there. The family was two parents with their children. They were headed from the park through the exit gates to the parking lot. A group of young males were hanging out near the exit and started calling to the teenage daughter as the family passed by. The comments were vulgar and lewd, definitely inappropriate. The father ushered the family away in an effort to get them to the car and leave the park. The young men followed them to the parking lot where they encircled the family. Let's freeze at this point. Who is Nage and who is Uke? Has violence begun yet? Should the father wait until one of the young men takes a swing at him or attempts to grab his daughter? Obviously, there's far more to this scenario than we would ever encounter in a dojo training environment. If you're curious at how this scenario came out, the father was beaten so badly he was in the hospital for some time. I would never presume to second-guess his actions or the actions of anyone else present. 
It's merely a learning lesson for how real violence can build up, very similar to how the military ambush situation does. The one thing which is far clearer in the military ambush is that the soldiers know instantly that they are in a fight. My guess is that the family felt something was wrong, but they probably didn't believe they were about to be physically assaulted. They probably believed that because they were in a public place that they were safe from physical violence. A soldier knows differently and is ready at all times. Civilians are the opposite because they are used to a peaceful environment and even have a hard time comprehending how a safe place can suddenly be extremely dangerous. Taking the initiative may not even include attacking. It may only require a decisive movement. If you feel you are in a bad place, make a quick exit or avoid going there in the first place. I'll leave you with a story from a fellow Aikidoka that illustrates this point. He went to high school with a kid who was that special combination of funny and unstable. There is a lot of questionable and erratic behavior with teenagers, but something about this kid set off my friend's instincts. Something in the back of his head said, avoid this guy. The problem was that this guy took a liking to my friend and constantly badgered him to come and hang out and party with him. My friend felt that he couldn't just say no or get lost for fear of agitating or insulting this guy, but he had no interest in hanging out and partying with him either. Fortunately, my friend is pretty quick on his feet and would respond with things like, hey, I'd love to go come to your party, but I got a date with this gorgeous girl that night. And the guy would come up with a crass response like, good for you, man, go get some. The strategy worked very well, and the guy never caught on that my friend was avoiding him. So how did this story end? Sometime after graduating high school, the guy was partying and ended up murdering someone, and the last I heard was serving a long prison sentence. My friend's instincts of avoiding this guy were spot on. Had my friend not listened to his instincts, he might have found himself in a disadvantaged position which was very dangerous and had to attack his way out. His solution was far more elegant. He had the blessing, though, of having some forewarning of bad things that may happen. The family in the parking lot had far less indication things were about to go horribly wrong. The conclusion is that we must build the understanding of the value of taking initiative, have the wisdom to know when to apply it, and have the training to succeed when the time comes when you need to attack effectively. When you need it, it better be ready to go. What other topics are you interested in hearing covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. You can also go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. You can also support this podcast by donating either through a monthly sponsorship or a single donation of any amount that you like. I always like hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thanks all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.